Welcome to the Beltline Church of Christ podcast. We're so glad you found us. Please take a second and hit the subscribe button so that you can be notified of these weekly podcasts. Most of all, we hope this podcast will help you take your next step with Jesus. If you want to know more about us, you can visit us at www.beltlinechurchofchrist.org. Here's today's lesson. If you have your Bibles, you can be opening to Matthew chapter 6, or excuse me, Mark chapter 6. Get in the right place here in just a second. Mark chapter 6, where we're going to be spending our time today, as well as over in Matthew chapter 10. And so we'll flip over there here in just a minute. So glad that you are here today. It's a privilege and an honor to get to stand before you and to present the Word of God to you. I want you to know as we get started that Jesus' message was different. It was different than anything else that was going on in that day and time. You see, Jesus wasn't just another synagogue preacher telling people to obey God's law. He was not just another preacher offering God's hope for the future. He wasn't just another prophet explaining how the prophets talked about the coming kingdom. Jesus was different. His message was different. He was saying on his own authority... That not only was the kingdom coming, the kingdom was there, then and there, in himself. In fact, Jesus would say, wherever he was, that's where the kingdom was. And if there was any doubt about whether Jesus was telling the truth or not, he solved all of that by performing these amazing miracles to demonstrate that what he said was true, was from God, was from the Lord. But in Nazareth, in Nazareth, his hometown... Rather than faith, there was a whole lot of doubt. Isn't it interesting uh, that Jesus' hometown really didn't believe that he was the Messiah? They had heard about all that Jesus had done at Capernaum. They had heard about all that he had been doing throughout the villages around the Sea of Galilee. But instead of those things sparking faith in themselves, they mocked him and they challenged him. Hey, do those things that you did everywhere else here. And the text says this, Mark chapter 6, verse 1, he went from there, from healing Jairus' daughter, which we talked about last week, he went from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. That's important. We'll talk about that in just a second. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Interesting. They took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty works there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. The people of Nazareth ask five questions of Jesus. Uh, they say, where did he get this knowledge, right? Uh, what is the source of all of this? That's their question. Uh, he, he's no different from us, so how is this happening? Where does this come from? This is a question of identity. Who is this guy? Because we know him, and this doesn't seem to square with the guy that we know growing up. Question number two, where did he get this wisdom? Where did he get this wisdom? And connected to that is question number three. How are such mighty works done by his hand? Because normally that idea of wisdom and power and scripture always go together. And so they're asking all of these questions. Who is this? What's going on? What's this all about? Question number four. We know his family. Is this not the carpenter's boy? 
Isn't this the, the craftsman? Isn't this the handyman? Isn't this, isn't this Mary's boy? James and Joseph's brother? What, what's going on? Are not his sisters, question number five, aren't his sisters here with us? All of these different questions. And the text tells us that Jesus marveled. He was astonished. He was amazed at their unbelief. And he could do no, he could not do many miracles there. Now, here's my opinion. This is just my opinion. The reason why Jesus couldn't do many miracles there is because they didn't even come to him to be healed. As we read in verse 5, the ones that did actually receive some healing, but they didn't believe in Jesus as the Messiah, so they didn't come to him for healing, and so he didn't do many mighty miracles there. I mean, they had watched him grow up. In their minds, there was no way that he could be God's man. No way that he could be God's Messiah. But I also think there's something else here that led to their unbelief. Because Jesus is a different kind of preacher. He's a different kind of prophet. Uh, the kind of kingdom that Jesus was talking about was not the sort of kingdom that they wanted to hear about. And so, it was easy for them. They didn't want to believe in what Jesus was saying. And so it was easy for them to say, oh, he's just a local handyman. <laughs> don't, don't listen to him. And I wonder if we're ever guilty of the same thing. I wonder if we ever do the exact same thing. Do we ever, do we ever attempt to discredit the messenger when we don't like the message? Are we guilty of the same thing? And what is so sad about this section of Scripture is that Jesus is the handyman. He is the craftsman. He's the one that can fix this, right? He's the one that can make it all right, and they are rejecting him. Sadly, their preoccupation with all of these other questions kept them from asking the question. You want to know what the question should have been? Not where did he come from, not how did he get this. The question should have been, okay, what does this mean? What does this mean? You see, they aren't even asking the right questions because they have shut themselves off from the possibility that Jesus is God's man. They've made up their mind. Uh, they believe that God's not going to work that way because it doesn't look like he thinks or they think it should look. But Mark tells us, and I pointed this out earlier, that Jesus' disciples were there with him. I think that's important. It's important for them to be there because there are some lessons that need, they need to learn. And there's some lessons for them to learn here in this section of Scripture. Here's the first. The first lesson they need to learn is this. Rejection's coming. <laughs> rejection is going to happen. And oftentimes that rejection is going to come from places you would least expect. And so Jesus is using this rejection as a moment to train his guys because he knows it's more important that they be trained to be disciple makers who can make other disciples. Makers, and so he wants to remind them of these lessons. Rejection is coming, and it's come, sometimes going to come from places you would least expect. And for us who are trying to preach the gospel and teach people and bring more souls to Jesus Christ, we need to understand as well, rejection is coming. Failure is common in the experience of anyone who wants to sow the seeds of the kingdom. But there's an also a second lesson that Jesus wants to teach here. And that is rejection is not the end of the story. It's not the end of the world. Yes, they rejected Jesus. If they rejected him, guess what? They're going to reject them and they're going to reject us. But rejection is not the end of the story. And that leads us into the last lesson. Jesus is amazed and he's puzzled by their lack of faith. But he is not paralyzed by this rejection. And we cannot be either. Jesus instead moves on to other towns and continues to preach the kingdom to those with ears to hear 
and eyes to see. I think we need to learn these lessons too. We must not let any rejection we might receive when talking about Jesus stop us or paralyze us from continuing to tell others about Jesus. But I want to add one more thing here. Another lesson I think is critically important for us, especially for those of us, like I was, who was blessed to grow up in the church. I think if we're not careful, what can happen is we can allow familiarity with Jesus to lead us to this same place that Nazareth found himself in. And it's not just about growing up in Jesus. Sometimes when we've done this church thing for so long, we, we can allow that familiarity with Jesus to, to, to keep us from seeing what's right in front of us, right? I really think it's important that we get this. We cannot, we must not lose our sense of awe of who Jesus is and what Jesus is about and what Jesus is doing. And we can never think, never think that we know it all. Well, there's nothing new that Jesus can teach us because if we do, that, if we become so familiar that it doesn't really matter anymore, then we're going to miss what Jesus is doing right in front of us. And so I want to take just a second to talk to you about some things that I think we can do to help us not become so familiar with Jesus that we miss what he's doing right in front of us. Can we do that? So, so I think there's four things that are incredibly important for us to fight against that familiarity factor. And here's the first one. We've got to study this thing for ourselves. It is great to come here preaching. It is great to go to your Bible classes and hear somebody else teach about Jesus. But we've got to dive into the Word of God ourselves. We've got to make this thing our own. We've got to study it. We can't just let others tell us about Jesus. We've got to go to the Word and investigate it for ourselves. It's not everybody else's responsibility to teach you. It's your responsibility to dive into the truths of Scripture, the gold mine that is the Word of God. And I'll tell you this, if you will study this thing for yourself, <laughs> familiarity will never be a problem for you. Because you're going to open it and there's going to be a new truth waiting for you every single time that you open it. You want to make sure we don't reject Jesus like Nazareth? Spend some time in this thing for yourself. Yeah, it's great. It's great. I'm so thankful for those who help me on my walk of faith. I'm so thankful for great preachers and teachers. But it's my walk, not theirs. And so I've got to study this thing for myself. Uh, a second thing, we need to ask God to reveal more of Jesus for us or to us. We need to ask God through his spirit to reveal more of who Jesus is to us. James says the reason we don't have is because we don't ask. Sometimes when we ask, he says, we're asking for the wrong things. And if we would just start to ask for the things that line up with the will of God, he would lovingly give us those things. How about asking that question? God, I want to know you more. I want to know more about your son. I want to experience you in every possible way that I can. Give me more of you. Give me more of you. I want more of you. Right? As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. Is that us? Or are we so familiar that we think, ah, eh, been there, done that, heard that. There's nothing else out there for me. No. You want to fight against familiarity? Study it for yourself. Ask God to reveal more of Jesus to you. Number three, you got to ignore the voice of the doubter. I wonder who it was in Nazareth that started the questions. Have you ever thought about that? Who was it that first said, okay, hold up now. Where is this coming from? 
And that, see, all it takes is one. One person casting a little bit of doubt, and then everybody else starts, yeah, you know, you're right. Where did that come from? And, and now, how about this? Or how about that? It's so easy for us to get wrapped up in the naysaying that we miss what's right in front of us. When these voices come, and they will, when these doubting voices come into your life, I'm just going to tell you, go back to step one and two. <laughs> Because if you'll go back to step one and two, the, the, the fountain will continually flow and, and you'll be able to see more and more and more of Jesus. Ask God for that fuller understanding of Jesus. And, and here's the last thing. Here's the last thing I think we do to fight against familiarity is we just do what he says. <laughs> you want a life of adventure? Do what he says. Do what he says, because I promise you, if you will just do what Jesus says, you will have that life of adventure. You want to experience Jesus in new and fresh ways every single day? Then do what he says every single day. You will never allow familiarity to be a stumbling block for you if you will simply go about doing what Jesus tells you to do. There, there's an endless amount of adventure awaiting for you if we will just do what he says. We don't want to be like Nazareth. We don't want to be guilty. Listen, they were in the synagogue that day too, like you're sitting in this church building here today, right? And they still rejected Jesus. I don't want to be guilty of that. I don't want you to be guilty of that. I want to make sure that in every possible way that Jesus is real to me every single day. In verse 7, Jesus is now going to release his guys into ministry. It says, he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirit. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you when you leave. Shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed them many with oil who were sick and healed them. This is amazing. Go with me to Matthew chapter 10 because Matthew 10 is where we get a fuller picture of the instructions that Jesus gives his guys as he sends them out for the first time into the region of Galilee to preach the gospel by themselves. This is so good. Jesus is intentionally moving his guys. We've been pointing this out from the beginning of this series of lessons 26 weeks ago. You know, that's how long we've been at it. Isn't that awesome? We've been talking about Jesus for 26 weeks. I love it. We've got at least 26 more to go. That's great. But Jesus has been intentionally moving his guys through this discipleship model. Remember, come, uh, come and see, Right? Come and see what this is all about. Follow me. Come and be a part of my ministry team. And ultimately, come after me and multiply. So we're beginning to see them transition into chair three and chair four, right? Uh, that's where they are right here, right now. Now, up to this moment, Jesus' disciples have been passengers in the car. He's been doing all the driving. Julie got her permit back in October of last year. And she went from passenger to driver. All of the places that we had gone to a thousand times when she was a passenger, she had to get directions for as the driver. 
And there's a whole lot of other learning curves that had to happen when she was driving the car. Uh, but, but think about that. She's gone from passenger to driver. That's what these guys are doing. Jesus has been driving the car. Now they're going to transition to the ones driving. These disciples have been astonished at what they have seen Jesus doing. But Jesus was the one making the decisions, handling the tricky moments. He was the one who uh, was steering them through towns and villages. He was the one taking the criticism. He was the one out in front, right? And now he's saying, okay, it's your turn. It's your turn to go and to do it yourself. Now, how do you think they felt? Do you think they were excited or do you think they were afraid or maybe a little bit of both? I can remember... <laughs> Uh, maybe they felt a little like I did. I can remember going door knocking back in the day. <laughs> and I would go up to a house. I'm like, okay, I need to do that. I need to go tell someone about Jesus. And so I'd go knock on the door. And inwardly, I'm like, oh, please don't answer. Please don't answer. <laughs> because what if I don't know what to say? What if I say the wrong thing, right? And so we get all worried and we get all nervous and we get all of these things. And I can see that's who they are, right? They're like, oh, okay, I, I want to drive the car, but... Oh, that just seems so intense. That just seems like so much. It just seems so difficult. Matthew in chapter 10 uh, gives us that list of the 12 disciples. Talks about how Jesus sent them out two by two so that they didn't have to do it all by themselves. That word apostle simply means to be sent out or one who is sent out. And we know that that number 12 is very, very significant because at the heart of what Jesus was doing was his belief that through his work, God was renewing and God was restoring Israel, which had traditionally been based upon those 12 sons, those 12 tribes, 12 sons of Jacob. But now, and this is really important, now the 12 were not just to be some sign that God was restoring Israel. No, the 12 were actually going to be the means by which that change and that restoration was going to happen. And so that is why in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 5, Jesus instructs them, I want you to go to the lost sheep of Israel first. Now, they're eventually going to go to the Gentiles, but there is an immediate and an urgent task that God calls them to first. Before that wider mission of going into all the world and preaching the gospel can be accomplished, Israel itself must hear the message. They must be given a chance to repent before it's too late. And so the instructions that Jesus gives his followers, these 12 apostles, must have made them even more amazed and even more nervous. Because what Jesus is calling them to do looks significantly different than any other students of a rabbi. What Jesus is asking them to do is going to be significantly different than anything anyone was doing at that time. He says, I don't want you guys to go swagger around talking about how great you are as servants of the coming king. He says, it's not about you. It's not about you at all. He says, I'm giving you authority instead to be healers and to be restorers and to be people who bring life and people who bring hope to others. Not only that, he says, I want you to avoid the appearance that your motive is anything but the gospel, that your motive is anything but the coming kingdom. I don't want there to be even a hint that your motive is financial. So he says, don't take any provisions for yourselves. He says, don't even carry the kind of bag that a beggar would carry to hold coins. And I don't want you to do that. He says, I, I want you to go out there and I want you to live off the gospel. They must expect that those who hear and receive the message will feed them. But he wants most of all the people to know that the gospel is free. The gospel is free. Not only that, listen to this. Matthew chapter 10 verse 11. 
Whatever town or village you enter, uh, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. That greet is, is important. We'll talk about that in a second. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if you, anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. So when they enter a house, they're supposed to give it a greeting. Uh, it's a blessing that they're going to give the house. And that Hebrew word for peace, shalom, it's more than just hello. It's more than just goodbye. No, shalom is a wish for, for people's wholeness. It's a wish for them to be whole spiritually and socially and physically. It's a powerful blessing. And if they are rejected, rather than blessing a village, they shake the dust from their feet and they move on. Now, this is not a temp temper tantrum. Receive me. That's not, that's not what this is. Do you, do you recognize that Jesus actually gave these 12 the authority to curse an entire city? Wow. Jesus wants them again to know not everyone's going to greet them with open arms. I mean, they didn't greet me with open arms in my hometown. They're not going to do the same for you either. And that's really what the next section of Scripture is all about in verses 12 through 24. In those verses, Jesus says, I need you to be wise. I need you to beware. He says, they're going to hate you. Uh, they're going to deliver you over to the enemy. They're going to persecute you in every possible way. It's coming. You need to be aware. If they did it to me, they're going to do it to you as well. But he reminds them that, 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 that whoever endures to the end will be saved. I want to focus in, though, on verse 26. So let's start there. Matthew chapter 10, verse 26. Let's read through verse 31. Jesus says, Have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you, have more, you are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus says three things. He says, have no fear. Have no fear because truth is coming. And truth is always going to win. In the end, truth is going to win. Nobody gets away with anything. Truth is coming. Truth will win. So have no fear. There's a lot to be afraid of in what Jesus has told his guys, but he says don't. Don't be afraid. Speak boldly in the face of opposition because the truth is going to win in the end. You need to hear that today. The truth that's proclaimed in the word of God, even though it may not look like it in the world we live in, it's going to win in the end. You can take absolute comfort in that. You can have a great confidence. You don't have to be afraid when secularism comes in and fights against you because truth wins. Truth wins. That's not the only thing he says, though. He also says, have no fear. Because, yeah, they can touch your body with persecution, but they cannot touch your soul. They cannot touch you. They can't really hurt you. And finally, he says, have no fear because God knows those who are his. God knows those who are his. We need to hear these same three things from Jesus because truth is coming and truth will win in the end. Persecution, whatever form it takes, cannot truly harm us. And God knows us. 
God knows you. There's no reason for you to ever be afraid to speak the name of Jesus. There is no reason for you not to speak up and speak out because those same three truths that were true for the apostles are true for us today. I mean, really, think about it. What's the worst anyone can do? Take your life? You get to go be with Jesus. Harm your body? You get to share in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. I mean, think about it. What's the worst that can happen? Count it all joy. Count it all joy. Now, that doesn't mean I got to go out looking for those things and looking for a fight, but it, doesn't have, it does mean I don't have to fear them when they come. And then there's this. Everyone, verse 32, who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I also will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. This has really been on my mind as I've prepared this lesson. Let me just say this. Some versions will say confess instead of acknowledge. Whoever confesses me before men, I will confess before my Father. That confession is not talking about a one-time thing that we do at baptism. That's That's not what this is. Our whole lives are confessing something. And so, today, right now, what is your life confessing to a watching world? And it's not too late. I don't care what you've done in the past. I don't care what mistakes or sins you've made. It's not too late for your life to confess the glories and the grace of Jesus Christ. You have not gone too far. It is not too late. He will acknowledge you if you will come to him and acknowledge him. And I think about this a lot. I really do. What will Jesus say about me to the Father? Oh, it's Steve. <laughs> Ooh, he was a knucklehead. Certainly got it wrong a whole lot. Certainly messed it all up. Clueless, clueless. No amens to that. Clueless in a lot of ways. But God, this is Jesus speaking. But God, Steve loves us. That's what I want him to say about me. He didn't do it right. He didn't get it all right. He messed up on a regular basis. But he loves us. He loves us. In verse 34, Jesus continues, Do not think that I've come to bring peace. Hmm. I've not come to bring peace but a sword, for I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now Jesus doesn't say here that everyone who follows him are going to find themselves split with their families. But what Jesus is talking about are the priorities of our lives. And Jesus is making some pretty remarkable and drastic claims about where our priorities should be. Now, please understand, he is not saying that all that matters is following God in the way that you think you should. 
<laughs> no, not at all. That is not the point of what he's saying. He is saying loud and clear that what matters is allegiance to him. Allegiance to Jesus Christ must be on top of every priority list. And here's the thing. The apostles, as we walk through the life of Christ, are going to fail him again and again and again in this very moment, in this very topic. And guess what? So are you, and so am I. But the challenge remains to make him the priority of our lives. We're going to fail, but he says, I want you to be challenged by this truth that I belong in the top of your life. It, it changes everything. It demands everything. It offers everything, and it promises everything. Jesus came to establish a new way of being God's people. And there are a lot of people who are just quite happy with the old way, and they didn't like to be disturbed. Some things don't change. He didn't want to bring division for division's sake. That's not the purpose of what he says here. But he knew that if people followed his way, division was going to come. And this passage, is that, this, this, what Jesus shares here is actually a quote from the prophet Micah. And Micah in scripture is predicting terrible divisions that would occur when God was doing a new thing among his people. Micah says when God acts to rescue his people, there are going to be some who declare, I don't want rescuing. They're fine with things just the way they are. And so Jesus is quoting this passage to his guys to remind them, even our own scriptures tell us to be aware that division's coming. But I need you to get this. That challenge, that challenge to place Jesus on the throne of your life, no matter what comes, is matched, is matched by an unbelievable promise that those who accept him, those that live by him, he will own before the Father. What a promise. Oh, he has high demands of us. He says, I want to be the priority of life. I want to be on top of everything. I deserve this place of honor and, and priority in your life and preeminence in your life. But understand that when you do that, I'm going to own you before the Father. And there is nothing that can happen to you here that can take that away. Everything else can be taken away, but not that. I will own you before the Father. I will confess you before the Father. I will be, I will be with you when you come into judgment. Jesus stands with us. He stands for us. This section of Scripture finishes in verse 40. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, uh, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he's a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Those who lose their lives will find him. Those who serve others are actually serving Jesus Christ. Whatever you do for Jesus, you do not just for Jesus, you do for God, the one who sent Jesus. This is a powerful section of Scripture. But here's the thing. If the sum of your existence in Christ is an hour or so on Sunday morning, these scriptures won't mean much. If the sum of your existence in Christ 
is what we do inside this building, these scriptures, probably, you're probably ready for this lesson to be over. If you're content to sit on the sidelines and let others around you talk about Jesus, let others around you attempt to bring people to Jesus, then these words, eh. They're nice. And I'm glad those promises are there. But they probably don't mean much if the sum of your existence in Christ is nothing more than this that we're doing here today. But... If you choose to live out your faith, if you choose to put him as the priority of your life, if you choose to open your mouth and tell anybody and everyone that you can about the good news of Jesus Christ, these words are priceless. They are so good. They are so important. They are so needed. You don't have to fear. Truth is coming. Persecutions can't harm you. God knows you. You need to hear that as you go out as sheep among wolves. If you choose to live out your faith, how amazingly important it is to know that when I speak up for Jesus, he does the same for me. If you're going to live for Jesus, these words will be an amazing promise. They'll be an amazing comfort. They will, they will get you through the dark times. They will lead you through the valley of the shadow of a death. So which is it? You want the life of adventure? You want the life of promise? Then hang on these words. Hang on them. Apply them to your soul and to your very spirit. And go out confidently knowing he is for you, he is with you, and nobody can snatch you from his hand. Go out and do. Go out and be just like he called these 12 apostles to do. You go do the same. And change the world just like they did. Which is it? What's it going to be? You want something new to happen in your life? Sometimes you've got to act in a new way. And I pray today's the day that you say, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done with weak dreams, small living. I'm, move, I'm going. I'm in. I'm all in, Jesus. I'm ready. I'm ready to tell my neighbor. I'm ready to tell my friend. I'm ready to tell that school kid that I know. I'm ready to, whatever. Whatever. Whatever it is. I pray that you'll do it in the name of Jesus. Thanks again for listening. If you are in North Alabama, we would love to have you visit and worship with us. Also, if this lesson blessed you today, don't forget to hit the share button and share this message with someone else. Hope you will join us again next week. As we close, here is our prayer for you. I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Have a great week.